Hi everyone, thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the Sabbath School Commentary. I'm uh, glad that you've joined me and I'm excited about the opportunity that we have to consider some of this week's lessons insights. The Sabbath School lesson this week is entitled Covenant Faith and it's lesson number 12. We're coming down to the wire and we're almost done with this Sabbath School lesson. Next week is, is our last week in studying this quarterly which was entitled The Promise, God's Everlasting Covenant. And we're moving into the next quarter's lesson, which is about resting in Christ. So I just want to read with you guys the memory text for this week's lesson. It's from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. It says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And so, just a few thoughts to just get into the lesson for the week. The word that sticks out to me in the memory text here is evident. So, Paul is is saying that man being justified by faith is evident, or it's clear, or it's observable. And then he quotes a passage of scripture from the book of Habakkuk, for the just shall live by faith. Now, that statement, although it's, a, it's an explicit statement of Scripture, it describes a lot of what you see all throughout the Bible. People who are declared righteous because of their faith in the God who's provided salvation for them. And, and so really this statement, the just shall live by faith, although it's just found in one book of the Old Testament, and it's quoted often by the Apostle Paul, it summarizes a lot of what in the Old Testament scriptures. And it's not just evident that the just shall live by faith because Habakkuk said so, but because that's the story that you see all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. So the Israelite nation in bondage choose by faith to accept the salvation that God affords them through their deliverer, Moses. Abraham, as the lesson points out this week, he believes God. He has faith in the promises of God, even when he can't see how the promises of God are going to come true, and he's accounted righteous. And it's by faith that people who got upon the ark, Noah's family, got upon the ark. It had never rained before. They had never seen a deluge or cataclysmic event, but they believed the word of God and they accepted the salvation that was being offered to them and then they were saved. And so you see the lesson of righteousness by faith all throughout the scripture. And so Galatians 3.11, but that no man is justified by the law or by a written moral code but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. That's the story of Scripture. Now, Sunday's lesson is entitled Reflections of Calvary, and I want to read the first paragraph, and then we're going to deal with this question at the end of the lesson. But a couple really great Ellen White quotes are shared here in regards to the death of the Son of God on the hill called Calvary. I just want to read this first paragraph. It says, The Old Testament way of salvation under the Mosaic Covenant is no different from the New Testament way of salvation under the New Covenant. Whether in the Old or New Testament, Old or New Covenant, salvation is by faith alone. If it were by anything else, such as works, salvation would be something that was owed us. 
something the Creator was obligated to give us. Only those who do not understand the seriousness of sin could believe that God was under some obligation to save us. On the contrary, if anything, there was only one obligation, and that was what we owed to the violated law. This is a good paragraph. We, of course, could not meet that obligation. Fortunately, Jesus met it for us. Amen. Now, imagine, imagine a person standing in the judgment of God before the infinitely righteous judge of the universe, believing or thinking that God was obligated to save them because of the righteousness of their lives. Now, if a person sinned one time and violated the the law of God, which is the law of life, which is a reflection of God himself, who is the life, it's a recipe for life itself, and it's as holy as God. To, to, To violate the law of God once is to commit yourself to death, and God honors free will. So God he would not, it's, it's just amazing who God is. He creates us in his image and he would not take from us our free will because free will is a component or a part of being made in the image of God. And so if a person were to sin once against the law of love, the law of life, God would honor their free will because that's what he made them. He made them in his image. They're free moral beings. That's what he made them. And so therefore they can choose. They deserve to die. They have chosen to die. And they have chosen to betray the author of life who has created life in accordance with the law, with his law. Life cannot exist outside of the law and love of God. And so the person who sins just once deserves to die, must die. And if that person does not die, then the law means nothing. It's not the law of life. It's an arbitrary requirement imposed upon creatures by an authoritarian God. But that's not the truth of the matter. The law itself is what defines life. And it's a transcript of the character of God himself. And so to violate the law of God is to, is to be worthy of death. And it's unjust to allow a person who sinned to live. So a person, I'm just I'm going to make a larger point here. So imagine a person who sinned just once and then stood before the infinite God of the universe and said, for 50 years of my life, although I sinned that one time, I didn't sin anymore, and I'm therefore fit for heaven, or I'm deserving of being in heaven. That would be preposterous because their life record is still stained by that one infraction of the holy law of God. And so I don't think that a person would ever just sin once. This is just an illustration for the sake of making the larger point. And that point is that it's impossible, but that righteousness could come or the the basis upon which we would be accepted as righteous by God could come on the basis of our actions or because of what we have done. I love that paragraph. I love it. It is so well articulated. I appreciate it so much. Now, I want to just mention a passage of Scripture that relates well to this this paragraph of the lesson on Sunday. And it's from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and it's verse 15. This is not a verse in the lesson this week, but it's a verse that comes to mind because I've used this many times in studying the Bible with people who think that in the Old Testament, people were saved because of what they did 
and they were counted righteous by God because they obeyed God. And he looked at them and said, wow, you're righteous. You've done good. You can go to heaven. You're entitled to heaven because you've been righteous in your acts. And this is a verse that I've shared. Notice what this says. This is Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 15. It says, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It's clear. This passage of Scripture is communicating very clearly that everyone who lived in Old Testament times, their sins were atoned for by Jesus. It's clear. And and this is the reason, according to the passage, that they can receive the inheritance that they were promised. And it's it's just like Galatians 3.11. No man is justified by the works of the law or by a written moral code. That's evident. The just have to live by faith. Now, before we get into the question at the end of Sunday's lesson, I just want to, there's a couple, man, these Ellen White quotes are so good, guys. They're just superb. And the lesson calls us to meditate upon these quotes. And I almost want to read them all, but I can't. I'm going to trust that you'll read them. But there's just a couple things I want to point out that I think are relevant to, to me and to you, or to you and I. At the end of the first Ellen White quote, she says, Pride and self-esteem cannot flourish in the hearts that keep fresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. So the means by which I may rid myself of unhealthy pride and unhealthy self-esteem, then it's, it's meditating upon the cross. It's the scenes of Calvary, fixing my mind upon Calvary. How often have we taught the subject of the death of the Son of God and the crucifixion of the Son of God on behalf of a fallen race and, and been proud and been filled with self-esteem. It's a great irony that gospel preachers and Sabbath school teachers would be proudful and filled with self-esteem while they're teaching about Jesus dying on the cross. And so I think it's something we need to ask God for forgiveness for because we casually associate with very holy things. And if we comprehended as we ought what has been done on our behalf, pride would not be flourishing in our hearts. And so may God help you to have a heart free from pride as you you share Sabbath school this week. There's another statement that she makes in the last quote that's provided here. It says, the scenes of Calvary call for the deepest emotion. And what are the things that call forth deep emotion from your heart? What thought what memory, what person, what event. Uh, There's lots that I can consider. She says, the scenes of Calvary call for the deepest emotion. Before I discussed, before I started hitting the record on this commentary, I had to confess before God that I do not have deep emotion right now as I'm preparing to deliver this commentary. And this statement was a clear rebuke to me because I often consider the scenes of Calvary, and they don't call forth the deepest emotion. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And I'm not actualizing sufficiently what has been done on my behalf. And then she says, upon this subject, you will be excusable if you manifest enthusiasm. And I'm thinking, oh no, I do not want to do a commentary right now, because I'm just having one of those days 
where I'm not feeling fresh and energetic and motivated. And I'm supposed to talk about a little bit about the, the, the Calvary, reflections on Calvary, and then the covenant faith, which is all about justification by faith through what Jesus has done and yeah, having a hard time with that. So I guess I'm just I'm sharing this with you guys to make a personal confession, but mo- more so to say that may God help us this Sabbath when we converse about Jesus on the cross, there will be no pride and self-esteem in us and that we will manifest enthusiasm and that we will be speaking with throats filled with emotion for the great gift of God through his Son, which has atoned for our sins. And if we believe on him, we will be saved. This is very important. Okay, to add to, to okay, so moving on to Monday's lesson, which was entitled The Covenant and the Sacrifice, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 is quoted at the top of the lesson. It says that you were ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. Okay, there was a price that was required for our redemption. What was it? This verse communicates the ransom price required for the redemption of the human race was the precious blood of Christ. So the violation of the law of God could not be atoned for, but through the Son of the living God. Now this is a a beautiful verse that's filled with powerful implications. Number one, it implies how valuable the souls of men and women and children are to God. He would offer his very own life for our redemption. Something's worth what you're willing to pay for it. What was God willing to pay for the human race? He was willing to give everything. Now consider what you think worthwhile and consider how much you would sacrifice for it, how much money you would pay for it. Then think of of the worth of a soul and God's estimate on the worth of a soul. God is the source of all that is. There is nothing in existence that exists outside of God. And before anything was ever created, any material thing was ever made in the universe, any spiritual thing was ever created, any created being or thing came into existence, there was no thing, but there was God. And so everything that exists because of God. So God in giving himself was giving the most that could possibly be given for the redemption of the human race. That's extraordinary. And this teaches the unselfish love of God. Further to this, in this passage of Scripture, as I alluded to when I first started commenting on it, this passage of Scripture helps us to understand that we could not be redeemed or atoned for or purchased back by the works of of our hands, the works of the flesh. There's no law code that we could have followed to be saved. He says, Peter says, the apostle says, we were ransomed from, we were redeemed. Some some versions say redeemed, some versions say ransomed. We were ransomed not by perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Okay, this is important. So the redemption of mankind required the blood of Christ. This is what the passage is teaching us. Now, I want to jump to, the, ver- the lesson invites us to read Romans 6.23, which says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then it also tells us to read 1 John 5, 
verses 11 and 13. Okay, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. I'm going to read this with you guys. So notice, 1 John 5 in verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he that has the Son has life. So believing in the Son means you have eternal life. You possess it, not in yourself, but in the Son. So the lesson asks the question, what message does this passage share with Romans 6.23? And that is that salvation is a gift. We've heard it before, true, but it's important. Martin Luther, he says that righteousness by faith, he basically says, this is my brutal summary, or this is me brutalizing his statement. It has to be pounded into the heads of people because it's just something that's hard to grasp. Now, the preaching partner, the the ministry partner of Martin Luther, Melanchthon, he coined this quote, it's faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. What he's saying is that accompanied with faith are works of obedience. There are corresponding works that follow faith. But still, we must realize and understand that although genuine belief and true faith, they they are followed by corresponding works. That is true. That is 100% true. 1,000% true. It's true. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Yes. And if you followed the trajectory of his life, it was a life of obedience and submission to the will of God. He followed where God led. But we must understand and realize the basis of his acceptance with God was still not his actions or the, the corresponding works that followed his faith. This is important to remember that, yes, 100%, true believers and people who really have faith, they follow, they submit to, they obey 100%. But that obedience is not the basis of their acceptance. That obedience may validate their confession, it may validate their profession 100%. It'll justify their claim to belief, but that itself does not merit their acceptance before God. We remember this, and we keep this fresh in mind. In the final judgment, by the way, in the final investigative pre-advent judgment that we are living in the midst of now, the basis of our acceptance, the basis of the final generation of people who live on earth, the basis of their acceptance is not their works of righteousness. No, their works of righteousness may be telling, may be revealing, and they come into the evaluation that the unfallen intelligences make of humanity. But still, when a person is found repentant in Jesus' name, when it can be demonstrated that they are a true and genuine believer, it's the robe of Christ's righteousness that is is given to this person, that, that gives them acceptance with God. We are justified by faith without the deeds of the law, even until, even in the investigative judgment. Justified by faith without the deeds of of the law. The condition of a man or a woman, no matter how sanctified they have become, is never the grounds for acceptance with God. This is really, it's str- it's not, I want to say it's strange to me, 
this thinking is strange to me, but it's not strange to me. I thought that many, I thought that before I was born again into Christ, that God would accept me because of my works, because I was a pretty good guy, and I had this preposterous notion that, that, that somehow I and my filthy sinfulness could stand before an infinitely righteous God and have that God go, oh yeah, this is amazing. You're so amazing. I just have to let you in. You are entitled to heaven. It's just unbelievable that anyone would, that we as human beings come to this place where we think that this is like reasonable thinking. Okay, so there's one little statement I'm going to read you from Monday's lesson. We're going to move on. I'll just read the, the last paragraph in Monday's lesson. We have this promise of eternal life because Jesus alone could repair the breach that first caused us to lose that eternal life. How? Because the righteousness and infinite value of the creator alone could cancel the debt that we owed to the broken law. I believe that 100%. That is how wide the breach caused by sin was. If the law of God is a transcript of God's character, and if it is the law of love and the law of life, and if violating that law dooms someone to eternal death. The only way that person could be atoned for is a life being given. The redemption price must be comparable to the law that was violated, or else the violation of the law could not be atoned for. You with me? The law is not arbitrary. The law of God is not arbitrary. It defines life, and it extends out from God, who is life. And a violation of the law of God is an assault on God himself. And so in order for the law of God to be atoned for, its violation to be atoned for, God must give up his life. That's the only way. That's what this paragraph is talking about. That's a profound thought. That's a magnificent thought. It's very deep. And then here's a a statement that I underlined. After all, what would it say about the seriousness of God's eternal moral law if some finite, temporal, and created being could pay the penalty for violating it? Woo! That's powerful. Moving on to Tuesday's lesson. The faith of Abraham... Part 1. Genesis 15.6 is quoted to start the lesson. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now this is speaking about the father of the faithful, Abraham. And the circumstance that Abraham is dealing with in Genesis 15 is that God has promised that he would have a son. And through Abraham's descendants, God would bless the world. But Sarah, his wife, is barren. She can't have kids. Abraham is old. His name is still is Abram here, but Abram is, a, is an old guy. And old guys with barren wives usually don't have good odds of having children. And so God has given him this promise that it's through his descendants that the world will be blessed, but he doesn't have any kids. And so Abraham, the Bible says, in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, chooses to believe God. He believes what God says, and he accepts God's promise as fact, as real, as true. And and God says, okay, I count you righteous. I'm going to account it as if you are righteous, even though you and yourself are not righteous, because you believe, you truly believe what I have said. In spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, you believe, Abram. You believe, and in my eyes, you're righteous. And he's righteous because of the Christ that was to come, that was going to atone for all of Abraham's mistakes. Now, it's interesting, because as I said before in this commentary, Abraham's life was characterized by obedience, but not perfect obedience. He stumbled and he fell on regular occasions. 
He's found lying to Pharaoh. He's found lying to Abimelech in regards to his wife, Sarah. He is having sex with his wife's handmaid, Hagar. Yes, it was at his wife's behest, but still he chose to do it. It was a big mistake. It was a massive mistake. It was a terrible mistake. It was a lapse in judgment and a lapse of faith in the promises of God. So his faith faltered. His belief failed him at times. He believed, but he had unbelief mingled with his belief. But still, his life was a life of commitment, sacrifice, and obedience to God. 100%. That was the course of his life. And, And it's interesting because being justified by faith without the deeds of the law do not mean you're not striving to keep the law. Salvation itself is a person wanting to be saved from sin. It was said of Jesus in, in Matthew one twenty one, and his name will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. The name Jesus is a transliteration of the name Joshua. The angel's saying he will be like Joshua, who brought the people from the wilderness of sin into the promised land. He saved them from the wilderness experience, which is comparable to the wilderness wandering in sin in this world. He will save his people from their sins. We're convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sinfulness, and we want to be saved from our sins, not just the consequences of our sins, but from sin itself. And so we follow Jesus into righteous living, but that doesn't mean that righteous living somehow makes us worthy of heaven. So I think you guys have got the point. So he believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is said in the context of him not having any evidence to believe that he was going to have a kid, but he just believes God's word. Now, to, to wrap things up here, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then we will end this lesson. We're in Romans chapter 1, and I just want to read some cool stuff here. We're beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say? that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due. Now if we believe that God is going to accept us because of our works, he's not going to accept us, because even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We give God our best because he deserves our best. We make sacrifice to obey. The Bible says those that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lust in Galatians chapter 5. It's true, 100%. But we never fall into the error of believing that our works of righteousness somehow grant us acceptance into heaven or entitle us to God's acceptance. As soon as we fall into that thinking that now we're having a workspace relationship with God. And he's going to have to pay us according to our works. And you know what those are? The works of death. 100%. And as I said before, even if you lived a perfect life of perfect righteousness for 50 years, but you sinned for 10. Come on, man. You're still that same person who sinned. Okay, now the one who works, his wage is not credit as favor. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, this is not in any way saying that true believers don't pursue righteousness. There's nowhere in the New Testament that gives us this idea. Paul is talking about the basis of our acceptance with God. 
what justifies us in the sight of a holy God. It's the righteousness of Jesus. Ellen White says in the book Steps to Christ, acceptance with God is the same today that it's always been. It's perfect obedience to the law of God. If you have not perfectly obeyed the law of God, you are not acceptable to God, not now, not ever. But if you believe in Jesus, truly, there you go. You have life because you have the Son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Be reconciled. Respond to what has been done on your behalf. Yes, pursue righteousness. Yes, he who is righteous, according to Romans 2, does righteousness. By all means, if you're righteous in Christ, you do righteousness. No doubt about it. But let's just not fall into that kind of works-based mindset or, or concept. Now, just a couple quick thoughts before we end. Romans 4, this is not in the lesson, but this is just some personal thoughts of mine. Romans 4, it talks about how Abraham did not falter at the promises of God. Now, I find that statement just awesome. And here's why it's awesome. It's because he did falter at the promises of God. But Paul's not being dishonest when he says that he didn't falter at the promises of God. No. Here's the faltering. Sleeping with Hagar. Lying to Pharaoh. He falters. 100%. He falters. But Ellen White says in Steps to Christ, it's not the occasional deed or misdeed that God is looking at. It's the course of the life. Where were you going? Where were you going? What you believe directs you. It guides you. It can be seen in the actions of your life. We're judged according to our works in the final judgment, not according to a work or a deed or a misdeed. And the combined works of our life, they tell a story. Do we believe or do we not believe? This is not to be confused with the basis of our acceptance before God. Listen, I'm saying these things to qualify because I believe that obedience is very important. I think it's, I think it's totally important. And I don't like when people downplay that by never saying it or by being afraid to say it because they're afraid to look not gospel-y or like they, they, like they don't understand the gospel. But think of it like this. Is there anything we have to do to be saved? It depends. It depends. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 says that God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So here's what you have to do to be saved unto eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that verse says that God is the Savior of all men. Why would that verse say that God is the Savior of all men? Because God has provided an opportunity for people to choose, to give us a second chance. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to not be alive right now. Even the people who are eventually going to be lost, they don't deserve to be alive now. So then why are they alive? Because God paid the ransom price for them too so that they're allowed to be alive. They have opportunity, second chance. It's, they have a second chance. So is there anything that we have to do to be saved? It's respond to the salvation that's been offered. Believe God. It's like 2 Corinthians 5. God reconciled the world to himself. Now you be reconciled. So you've been reconciled in the person of the Son of God. Okay, so be reconciled. Respond to that. Actualize it in yourself. Choose it. Choose to believe it. Is there anything that we have to do to accept salvation? Now that's a question that could be discussed for a long time. I would say... Yes, there is something you have to do to accept salvation. Accept salvation. Yeah, yeah. Accepting is something. Repent and be saved. Repentance is not a work that, that God looks at that entitles you to salvation. Repentance is just coming back to God. It's just accepting salvation. Is obedience required for salvation? Here's another question. Do people need to follow Christ to get to heaven? These are all cool questions. I want you to ponder them and consider them. Think of the Israelites, and this is just a little thing I'll leave you guys with. Just something to think about, to consider. 
on this subject of justification by faith. If you were an Israelite in Egypt, after the 10th plague fell and, and Pharaoh said, I'll let the slaves go, get out of here, you were, legally speaking, free. God broke the back of Pharaoh. He crushed the oppressor because the oppressor wouldn't stop oppressing. He was bent on oppression. And, and so God had to do what God had to do, and he destroyed him. Now, if you were an Israelite who had applied the blood of the Paschal lamb onto your doorposts and onto the root, onto the lentil of your doorposts, the death angel passed by your house. You were not subject to the judgments of God. You were legally speaking free. You were saved. You were effectively saved. Now, if you didn't choose to follow Moses and leave Egypt, guess what? You're going to die in Egypt. And Egypt is a symbol for sin, right? So is obedience required for salvation? It depends. Is following Jesus required for being saved? Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow. So you're not following Jesus if you're not following Jesus. You're not following God. If you're not leaving Egypt, you're not following Moses, who's your savior and, and who's a type of Jesus, 100%. Look at Hebrews 3. So obedience is important. It's, it's essential. But it's not the basis upon which you're accepted by God. No. It's your response to the fact that you've been saved and you believe you've been saved. If you're an Israelite slave in Egypt and you believe you've been saved and you want to accept salvation, guess what you do? You obey and you follow Moses and you get your backside out of Egypt. So obedience is important. And if a person chose not to obey and stay in Egypt, that's their choice. They're choosing not just to disobey, but they're choosing to not accept the freedom that God has afforded them. They're not accepting the sacrifice that's been made on their behalf. So guys, God bless you as you continue to study and learn and grow. I hope that Sabbath school is a blessing for you guys. I hope that this commentary time has provoked some thoughts, uh, some good thoughts, and that you've been blessed to a degree by spending some time with me. God be with you guys. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Take care.